Welcome back to Rabbit Hole Happy Hour. My name is Ashley. My name is Mallory. We're back at you a little earlier than normal because we fucked up. No. Yeah, we <laughs> we felt like we kind of left y'all hanging for a while, so we thought we'd just go ahead and release a new episode. So it's a mini, and Mallory's going to kick us off, but first, anything new with you, Mallory? Since last week? Uh... <laughs> Well, I did go on a hike this week, Amicalola Falls in Georgia, if you're familiar, probably not, but (laughs) it's so beautiful, and the fall colors were just in full display. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, well, I was going to say, it's, it was nice, it was great, but I hiked up, and it's a very steep hike up to the waterfall, because it's like off of the side of a mountain. Yeah. And I'm just at the beginning of my fitness journey, as you guys mm-hmm. know. It's only been a few weeks. <laughs> so I puked my guts out at the top. <laughs> she flew up, mommy. I flew up. <laughs> but then the walk down was amazing. It was so oh, nice. nice. <laughs> so and we hiked another trail that was easier, too. But That's awesome. Fucking hell, man. Well, bravo. Thank you. Thank you very much. I also saw the fall colors on full display. They were at their peak. (laughs) We went up to the Blue Ridge Mountains this weekend and went apple picking. Oh, nice. And we made fried apples. Yeah. Which we put atop vanilla ice cream, which was very nice. Oh, that sounds so good. With a little bit of cinnamon. Little thought about all the apples when I made them. <laughs> nice. Did you know that there is cinnamon toast crunch seasoning? Mm, Cause I sent my husband out to get sugar and cinnamon because we were up at the cabin. We didn't have anything like that, and we were gonna, you know, make these apples. But he came back with cinnamon toast crunch seasoning, and I was like, how ingenious! Oh my god! But, so it's just sugar and cinnamon. It's just the 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 dust that's on the cinnamon toast crunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that in the commercial they say sugar and cinnamon? In every bite. In every bite, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So it was yummy. Oh my God. Well, yes, we are here on a Sunday and. Fine Sunday evening. I have to go back to work tomorrow. I had this entire last week off. Oh, lucky. Yeah, but. Uh, and honestly, it felt really long somehow, but now it's <laughs> over. I went to a Halloween party the other night. Oh, cool. Did you dress last up? night? Not last night. The night before last. Um, I just wore what I wore to Dragon Con. Stupid. A oh. diaper? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, a um, little like hoodie thingy that is uh, Pokemon. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Brent dressed up like some Dragon Ball Z character. Um, trying to think if there were any other cool costumes. Our friends Erica and Cass, the whole family, they were Peter Pan characters. So she was Wendy. Her husband was Captain Hook. And then their little kids, um, he, they've got a son the same age as Adrian. Mm-hmm. And he was a little baby Peter Pan. And it was so Aww. cute. He was so cute. Cool. It's not interesting to anybody. <laughs> so <laughs> No, it's cool. I love Halloween. And yeah. I love seeing people's costumes. It's the best. Me too. You guys going trick-or-treating? Yes, we are. <laughs> So we're going to actually be in a Halloween parade. What? In my parents' neighborhood. So that'll be fun. Oh, wow. 
I actually saw one of my favorite Halloween costumes ever on TikTok. It was uh, two women. One was in a wheelchair dressed up as Gypsy Rose, and the other was <gasps> Dee Dee Blanchard. I was like, what the fuck is her name? Dee Dee, yeah. Oh, my God. That's not, we need to do that story, probably. Yeah. Everyone knows, probably, but I think she's getting out of jail yes, soon, she right? Is. Oh, my God. I cannot wait. I hope she starts a YouTube channel. Yeah. Does makeup tutorials. And just... I hope she does something big. Yeah, me too. Anyway. Although she probably just would... I don't know. If I were her, I would just want to disappear. But... (laughs) You know, in reality, that's true. Yeah. But my fantasy... I know. I know. Same. Well, what are we drinking here? Well, let me tell you. I have concocted a drink... That I did not create myself. <laughs> it was called a campfire mule. It has, okay, so it calls for smoky bourbon or whiskey. The stupid liquor store, which is a big liquor store near oh, yeah. my house, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. It did not have anything besides, I just, I was standing in the aisle like Googling and like looking up smoky whiskey Reddit, like to see if anybody had yeah. any suggestions. Everybody was suggesting all of these Irish whiskeys and stuff. So mm-hmm. this is a Jameson. It's a black barrel, though. It's supposed to be charred with something. Okay. That's why I was like, okay, well, maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be smoky. It really does not taste that smoky mm-hmm. to me. Do you taste it at all? I don't. Okay. I didn't either. So get a smoky whiskey or just smoke it yourself because you can do that too. And then, okay, so... Smoked whiskey, it has ginger beer. Obviously, this is a version of a mule, so a Moscow mule. So it also called for lemon juice, and we left that out because I don't think that would have tasted good at all in this thing. So, Mm-mm. And then maple syrup, uh, 100% pure. Mm-hmm. And then you get a marshmallow, mm-hmm. and you stick it on toothpick, and then you roast it. And then you put it on top of the drink and then you eat it and don't put it in the drink at all. <laughs> I'm going to put a picture of it on the Instagram. <laughs> it's a garnish. It's just to make it look more campfire So I like it. The more I drink it, the more I like I it. I do too, actually. It's growing on me. At first I was like, I don't really know what to think. But yeah, it I wasn't disgusted at first. It tastes like a mule. Weird. It does. But with a, but with it's a, a little different. Smoother yeah. touch. I think the problem, too, is Jameson is really smooth to begin with. Uh-huh. So it's probably just not... If it were smokier, that would probably be... I think so, too. I got sushi the other night at this really good restaurant that I'll have to tell you about later. But I got a smoked old-fashioned. And mm. they, like, literally have a smoke jar that's just... Yeah. Always has smoke in it. Yeah. I was like, does that jar just always have smoke in it? And he's like, yep. Oh my god. Wow. It's a potion. So there's this speakeasy bar in Asheville that my sister and I go to sometimes. She lives in Asheville. And they have a tobacco infused whiskey there, but they Mm -hmm. infuse it at the bar. Mm -hmm. So they do like it's they burn the tobacco leaves into a jar and then let the whiskey like I don't know how they do it, but Hmm. I forgot the exact process. But yeah, it. It's like two seconds. They like let it sit with the smoke and it tastes like fucking smoke. Wow. It's crazy. So yeah, that's what we're drinking. <laughs> the reason I chose this drink is because the story I'm going to tell you 
takes place while some people were camping in the woods. I felt like this is kind of a traditional scary movie type thing that happened, even though it's like much more horrific than that. And it happened in real life. <laughs> oh, dear. But also my boyfriend Brent had actually sent this to me a few days ago and it was a Reddit post and it was so fucking long and I was like, I'm not reading this right now. And then I eventually read it and I was like, I think I'm going to do this story. So this takes place in Finland in the 1960s. So I'm going to tell you the story of the Bodum Lake murders. Okay. I think I've heard of this. Yeah. I mean, I've heard the name. Yeah. See, I didn't even know it was like, I've heard that name before, but I didn't realize it was this because the title of the Reddit post that he sent me was not that Hmm. and didn't even say that. So I didn't really put two and two together. I mean, I didn't know anything about the story and I really only remembered seeing one thing from the story. So I'm curious to see if you've seen this thing that I have also seen, but we'll get there. Okay. Okay. And Disclaimer, as always, these are Finnish names. I know I'm not going to say them correctly, so please don't rake me over the coals too much. Thank you. Goodbye. Seppo Boisman and Nils Gustafsson had both been inseparably close friends since they were 12 years old and often spent nights at each other's houses. They both became electricians after graduating from school. In May of 1960, Seppo, now 18, began dating a girl who was 15-year-old Tuliki Maki. And around the same time, Nils began dating another 15-year-old named Ermeli Bjorklund. Two weeks after Nils' birthday, the four of them decided to go camping near Lake Bodum outside of Espo, which is like 25 kilometers northwest of Helsinki. And Helsinki is like south Mm -hmm. of Finland. Ermeli was excited for the upcoming holidays because this was going to be her first summer without having to take care of her younger brothers. Although Seppo and Nils' parents saw them as reliable and trusted them, Ermeli and Tuliki's parents were reluctant to let them go camping alone. Well, yeah, they're girls. My parents would never. Mm, no. But also they didn't allow me to go past the driveway, so. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ride my bike in the garage if it was cold oh, outside. My God. And it, when it wasn't cold outside, I had to ride my bike in a circle in the driveway. I mean, I don't blame them. Wait, up until you were but 18? Back then? No. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> Even in like 1999, like when, I don't know. Pervers be pervin all the live long day. It's true. Because actually, one time when I was on track for like two seconds, the track team. I ran past a house in my neighborhood, and there was this guy. I was 15, I think. And this guy was working on his car in his garage, and he was like, hey, nice butt. Oh, my God. I I was about at the point where I was going to turn back and go back to my house. Oh, no. My house had, or my uh, neighborhood had two entrances, so instead I just went on the main road and ran back to my house that way. (laughs) Smart call. (laughs) Yeah. Like, no thanks. So that was gross. Anyway. So the campsite was a 30-minute drive from their home in Helsinki. They got to the campsite on, it was June 4th, 1960. Seppo had borrowed a canvas tent, brought fishing gear, a few knives, pliers, two bottles of strong liquor, and a dozen light beers 
Nils brought bread, sausages, and snacks. In the afternoon, Seppo and Nils borrowed two motorcycles, which they drove to pick up Tuliki and Irmeli to bring them back to the campsite. I don't know why, but I guess they set up everything and then went and grabbed them on who the hell knows motorcycles. (laughs) Borrowed them. Yeah. The four of them set up on the south shore of the lake, where they found a good camping spot on a small peninsula only a few steps away from the beach. Their camping spot was generally in a safe location and private location. Not long after, Seppo and Nils dropped off their backpacks and got on their motorcycles to drive to the campsite canteen, which was one kilometer away from their campsite. They bought a few packs of chewing gum and bottles of soda to mix with wine, which I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, I have recently seen that. Really? Yes, where um, people mix red wine with like cherry Coke or something. What? Yeah, I've seen that recently on TikTok because everything's there. Well, I guess they were doing it in 1960 in Finland, so that's crazy. By the time they returned to the campsite, it was already 7.15 p.m., and they set up their single tent, which could barely fit all four people. Early the next morning, on June 5th, two people were going for a walk alongside the south shore of Lake Bodum. It was nearly 6 a.m. when they heard a sound of, like, someone moving or just something they couldn't really see what it was though so they decided to try and at least kind of look and see what was going on and they stumbled across the two motorcycles that were leaning against a birch tree and then they came across a partially collapsed tent they noticed that a man was lying on top of the tent they couldn't really see his face too clearly all they said is they could see that he was wearing dark pants and then later they said that they saw another man walking away from the tent They said they also couldn't make out his face and only saw that he was wearing a light-colored shirt. They said the man walked into the woods and disappeared. They said that they wanted to get a closer look, but they decided not to investigate further because they didn't want to disturb their fellow campers. How polite. Yeah. I feel like if I saw a man just laying on top of a tent, I would be like, "Mm, something else is going on here. I think I would be afraid. Yeah, maybe they left because of that. They were like, well, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they didn't have cell phones to call 911 back then. They sure did not. I guess they didn't. (laughs) I guess they didn't have those in 1960. I guess. (laughs) Around the same time, a 14-year-old boy named Olavi was sitting by the rocks near the lake waiting for the others he was fishing with to return. While waiting, he noticed a young man about 20 years old and average height with brown hair combed back, wearing a light-colored shirt and dark pants walking out of the forest. He then saw the man walk south, and he disappeared from his view. By 10 a.m., more and more campers were waking up, and they all started to notice that this tent was collapsed and there was a man lying on top of it. So more people were waking up and like, uh, what's going on? So a group of teenagers swimming in the lake near the campsite saw the tent with the dude lying on top of it, And they were like, oh, well, maybe there was a fight going on between campers, blah, blah, blah. And they decided they didn't want to get involved. 11.15 a.m., a passerby saw the same man lying on the tent. And he would finally be the one to actually do something about this. He ran towards a nearby construction site to use a public phone to call the police. So finally, the local police and detectives arrived. 
They identified the man lying on top of the tent as Nils. Nils had been heavily beaten. His face was swollen so much that his eyes were swollen shut. He also suffered several fractures to the left side of his jaw, cheekbone, and temple. Other injuries consisted of stab wounds to his left forearm and right face, and a stab wound to his cheek that was completely cut through the muscle, exposing his teeth. Oh, no. Chilling. So the police looked inside the tent and found the other three campers. Oh, my God. Seppo was lying on the edge of the tent near the entrance with his hands placed on his chest. He had been struck several times on the chin and face with a blunt object with several fractures to his skull. He'd also been stabbed multiple times through the tent canvas with two fatal wounds to his neck and chest. Tuliki was found curled up, face down, with her shirt pulled up over her head. She had suffered several blunt force wounds to her head, resulting in skull fractures. Lastly, Irmeli was lying near the curtain of the tent. Her left leg was parallel to Tuliki's back, and her right leg was bent on Tuliki's head. Ermelie's shirt was pulled up to her shoulders and her jeans pulled down toward her knees. She had suffered three blunt force wounds to her head, resulting in fractures to her skull and jaw, causing severe brain swelling and intracranial bleeding. She had suffered 15 stab wounds to her neck and shoulders. Nils was miraculously still alive and rushed to the hospital. Oh my God. Yeah. And he was on top of the tent. He was the guy on top. Everyone inside the tent was dead. So the police's theory at this point, obviously, is that the killer first cut the guy line or whatever you call those stupid tent strings. The thing that holds the tent. Oh, like the, yeah. You know, yeah. That the, the stakes str- go on. Yeah. The strings that, that's a guy, I Googled it. I'm not sure if that's the right term. The guy line. It's the string that connects the stake okay. to the tent. Oh. So like they cut it and let the tent collapse on them so they could see their heads where they were. Oh, my God. But they couldn't see the attacker. Um, Oh, my God. Isn't that horrifying? I never want to go stay in a tent again after (laughs) reading this story. So the police gathered all their items from the crime scene, which consisted of clothes, bags, cigarettes, cosmetics, and a journal belonging to, to Leaky. Police also found four knives, but none of them were the murder weapons. Two of their bottles of alcohol were left behind, with one containing an unknown fingerprint not belonging to any of the four campers. Several other items, however, were missing. Their wallets and ID cards, a knife, Seppo's leather jacket, two watches, shoes, and the keys to the motorcycles. Over the next few days, police, alongside several volunteers and even soldiers, conducted various searches of the campground. The police used metal detectors and dogs, as well as sent divers to go to the bottom of Lake Bodum. I think they were just looking for, like, those items that were missing. Mm-hmm. Or, like, the murder weapon. Or- yeah, yeah. On the, side of the ro- on the side of the road, 500 meters away from the crime scene, the police found a pair of worn-out brown leather shoes under a stone with several bloodstains on them and another pair of shoes in the bushes across from the road. One pair belonged to Nils, and the other pair were Seppos. Due to the violent nature of the crime, the attacks were made the police's main priority. 
the police asked the public for information and asked them to come forward if they had any information on the killer. As is probably par for the course, police had to deal with dozens of false leads, including people being reported to the police for no other reason aside from them being out late or, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. None of the people reported to the police had any evidence against them indicating guilt and every single suspect was released. The police's investigation reached a dead end for the time being because they had nothing. They had no suspects at all. I mean, they had some evidence, but this was 1960. We didn't have DNA, nothing like that. We had that one fingerprint that didn't belong to them. Mm -hmm. So while the police were chasing leads, the locals had their own suspect, a 51-year-old man named Carl Gilstrom. Carl owned a truck stop and a convenience store near the canteen and the campsite, so many campers would often go to his business to purchase, you know, whatever they needed. Carl was known for his violent temper. Uh-oh. It was even said that Carl, this sounds like a, a Halloween myth also, but it was said that he would hide razor blades inside the apples growing on trees near his property to stop kids from picking them. Oh my God. Yeah. And I don't know if that was just like a thing that he maybe told people to get people to stop, but Uh. (laughs) still a little crazy. Um, He was also a heavy drinker and he notoriously hated campers that camped near his place at the lake. One time, even a local resident saw Carl illegally hunting on his land And when he asked Carl to leave, he raised his shotgun and shot the man. What? He literally just was like, no. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just shot him. Okay. The guy didn't die, but he did have to have bullet fragments surgically removed from his body. Jeez. Um, And Carl also was like a stickler for people driving correctly. So, or just like... Not driving fast past his truck stop or, like, anything. I don't know. So, one time a truck was driving too fast near his truck stop. And I'm not sure. It's unclear whether the truck, like, came into his truck stop or what. But I guess he had to have because Carl just fucking smashed all the windows on the truck. Holy shit. And he he (laughs) defended his actions to the police by saying... He was just trying to scare him off for driving too fast and honking too loudly. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Valid. Yeah. Carl always was known to keep a hunting knife and a steel pipe on his person at all times. And he would place wooden strips with nails sticking out of them on the roads to puncture the tires of passing cars. (laughs) I can understand why people think maybe he had something to do with this. Yeah. And he also had been seen going onto the campground and, like, destroying and, like, slicing up unoccupied tents. Golly. So, on June 4th, Nils and Seppo had visited his truck stop and bought some things before they left. Carl actually was not working at the time, though. His wife was the one that checked them out at the register. After they were done there, they drove past Carl's house on the way to the campsite. Carl's wife ended up telling him, I feel bad for this lady, but also what the fuck are you doing? Knowing that he hates campers and he's a violent person. Mm -hmm. She told him that there were four campers camping nearby. So do with that what you will, but 
uh, when Carl was later informed of the murders by a local, he apparently reacted to the news very nonchalantly. Another thing is that Carl had installed a well on his property, which made people suspicious just because they're like, oh, he probably... Because everyone in the community thought he did it. They're like, oh, he just threw the murder weapon at the, you know, down the well, whatever. And I think I say this later, but the police did not search the well ever. Mm. Nils and Seppo's shoes were also found on the road leading to his truck stop and home. So Carl and his wife were questioned by police. They both said that they were sleeping the night of the murder and that Carl slept in the living room and his wife slept upstairs with their kids. His wife said that the door was unlocked to their house, but she did not ever hear Carl leave. The police searched their home, but left after finding nothing of note. Of course, everyone in the community was enraged. Like I said earlier, they did not search the well at all. So everyone was like, why the fuck didn't you search that well? So on June 9th, Nils still in the hospital. He woke up. Oh my God. He looks like such a little baby. I know. Uh, They were babies. They were super babies. So Nils wakes up in the hospital. He does not know where he is. The police want to question him, but he could barely speak, often just moaning in pain. Eventually, when he was able to speak, he said that he did not remember what happened. Oh, no. On June 23rd, Nils was discharged from the hospital and left through a back door so that he could go to the police station to give a statement. So, according to Nils, on June 4th, he and Seppo set up their tent at 7.30 p.m. and everyone hung out until 9.30 p.m. when they finally went to sleep. A few hours later, Nils woke up to the sound of Seppo outside of the tent looking for fishing gear. So, this is what's weird to me. is like, why did... Why is he saying they went to sleep at 9.30 p.m.? Um, especially when this is summer in Finland, the sun okay. doesn't set until 10.30. Okay. So they had a lot of daylight left. So Nils decided to join Seppo, and I don't know what they did in between. I guess they were fishing for a while, and then they were still awake and wanted to go swimming around 3 a.m. So... This testimony was actually considered accurate because Tuliki had written in her journal that they found that Seppo and Nils were drunk and got up at 2 o'clock in the middle of the night and that she had listed somewhere that Seppo was fishing. When the police pressed him for what happened next, he said that his next memory was waking up in the hospital. So the police brought him back to the crime scene in hopes that it would trigger some repressed memories, but he still could not tell them what happened. Police now saw only one option left which this is weird but I guess it's a thing I don't know if it's a thing here so much but they went to I think they do do this here too but they went to the University of Helsinki and requested that a professor specializing in psychiatry put him under hypnosis to dredge up some of his memories Mm -hmm. you know something they had had success with with other patients so from July 2nd to July 5th Nils was put under hypnosis three times for an hour each, and he finally was able to describe how he and the others were attacked by a man with a knife and a blunt object. When asked if he could describe this man, he said that he could. Based on his description, the police 
determined that the man was 20 to 30 years old, 173 to 174 centimeters tall, which is 5'6", five, 5'7", five, had an average body type, round face, long blonde hair that was combed back, normal non-protruding ears, high forehead with uneven horizontal wrinkles, thick lips, a strong jaw, slightly protruding cheekbones. I'm describing a lot here, but this is all they had in here. Short neck, white teeth, thick, large fingers, pimples on the forehead and cheeks. And lastly, he was wearing a thick fabric checkered dark shirt with small black buttons. So based on this description, I'm going to have Ashley draw what her version of this would look like. <laughs> I'm going get, to get Ashley to draw her own little police sketch and we'll post it on Instagram. <laughs> Are you ready for the description? Yes. So a round face with long blonde hair that was combed back. Normal non-protruding ears. <laughs> a high forehead with uneven horizontal wrinkles. Thick lips and a strong jaw. <laughs> Slightly protruding cheekbones. A short neck. White teeth, but if you've already drawn the mouth, that's fine. <laughs> Pimples on the forehead and cheeks. And actually, that's it, because the next one is just a shirt he was wearing. Oh, he doesn't have eyes. Oh, yeah, that's weird, because actually eyes are... Okay, I'll just tell you, based on the other, uh, on the police sketch, the eyes are huge. Huge eyes. <laughs> what about his nose? <laughs> just do a Just do a room, yeah. He wasn't memorable either way. But I'm going to draw a shirt, too. Okay, so the shirt was thick fabric checkered dark with small bl black buttons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. Okay, well, are you interested in seeing what it really looks like? And yes. this is the thing that I was telling you I've seen before and okay. didn't realize I, it was this. <gasps> yes! I have seen that before. It's so scary. It's so scary, dude. It's so scary. Oh. It's, a creepy, it's one of the creepiest police sketches I've ever seen. And there's several versions here, but there's... They're really big lips. Yes, huge lips, just sunken eyes. Obviously, we'll post a picture, but it's just scary as fuck. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Yay. We'll have to label... If we post yours, we'll label it yeah. Ashley's version. <laughs> so police received a bunch of tips based on the sketch, and they ended up with nine suspects, or persons of interest, I guess. And I'm just going to tell you about a few of them here. So on June 6th, 36 year old German national Hans Ostmann arrived at the Helsinki surgical hospital by ambulance with red stains on his hands and overalls. His wife accompanied him to the hospital and said that Hans passed out after experiencing stomach pain during their routine tests. A doctor, so Hans is unconscious, or he had passed out. They poke him in the side, and he laughed. Like, it tickled. And they were like, you're fucking faking this, oh bitch. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine? Dude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
Oh, my God. So after he was caught in this lie, he started threatening hospital staff and demand, demanding immediate treatment. During his stay in the hospital, a woman had visited him who was not his wife. And apparently the staff saw them like whispering to each other a lot. I mean, they couldn't hear what they were talking about. But when he talked to hospital staff, at one point he told them that he was a guard at Auschwitz. But, so he was a German, and this is 1960. So, depending on how old he is, did they say? He's 36. So, yeah. But he became disillusioned with Nazism after falling in love with a Jewish girl. So, he was reassigned and ended up being captured by the Red Army in 1943. He said after two years in a POW camp, he fully defected and then joined the KGB. So that's his story. I don't know. It doesn't really make a difference to the thing I'm telling, but (laughs) he was discharged from the hospital after a few days, but continued to come back for like follow-ups or whatever treatment. And every time he would make the staff uncomfortable, like he was just, I think he was just a really uncomfortable, like, unpleasant person weird he does not look like he's 36 i'm not sure when that picture was taken i don't know because i thought i had the same thought i was like this cannot be him at 36 (laughs) i am 36 right now (laughs) i'm looking at this picture like uh (laughs) i don't know so well we know he's ticklish we know he's ticklish (laughs) so yeah at one point he actually showed one of the doctors, an article from a German magazine about a cold case, not not this case, but he made a joke that both he and the surgeon were good with a knife, but unlike the surgeon, he didn't save anyone with a knife. Uh, I think he was just, yeah. I don't know. So the hospital staff was all like, this motherfucker did this murder, like or oh. these murders. They all were like convinced that he was the one. Especially after seeing the sketch in the newspaper. He has some similar features to the sketch. Yeah, he does. So, I guess maybe he was... So, just full disclosure, I'm not translating, but a lot of this... I got this from somebody who... I do not think English was their first language. And all of their sources were Finnish sources that I translated to English on the websites. So... This is a little gray, like, I don't know how long he was in the hospital, but I guess at one point the hospital staff called the police and took his quote-unquote bloody clothing to hand off to the police. Hans uh, never was actually arrested, though, and they apparently never tested his clothes. According to the police, Hans had an airtight alibi, but they never released what it was to the public. Another suspect that came to the police's attention was a man named Pauli Luoma. Pauli was a bicycle thief who was seen in the area wearing a backpack that seemed similar to one that was stolen from the campers. And he also was seen wearing what appeared to be a bloodied shirt. He also had an alibi and it was corroborated by numerous witnesses in a different area of Espo during the time of the murder. So they let him go. Another suspect was 15-year-old Penty Sowininen. Despite his young age, Penty had committed several violent crimes. 
I think by the time he was 24 years old, he had been arrested and confessed to like a number of shit, like things that he had done. He told police that he was at Lake Bodom during the time of the murders after running away from school. Since he couldn't tell the police any details that were not already public knowledge, the fact that there was no evidence linking him to the crime and that he was kind of known for lying to try and build up a reputation, they gave little weight to his confession. And sadly, Penty later hanged himself at a railway station during a prisoner transport. Oh, man. While he was in jail. The last suspects that we know about, we know the least about them, and they're not really suspects, they're more persons of interest. Two young men were seen fishing at the lake the night of the murder and supposedly could have or were believed to have possibly witnessed the crime, and they possibly have valuable testimony, but they had left their fishing equipment on the rocks by the lake and got out of there. They left all their shit and ran. They never returned to get their equipment. They were never identified. And despite numerous appeals by the police, they never came forward. And so the police gradually ran out of leads. Eventually, updates in the investigation stopping published in the newspapers. The police ran out of leads to investigate and the case went cold. So we're going to take a break. Okay. <laughs> I got a few more twists and turns for you. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Hello. I've returned from the store. Just kidding, I didn't go to the store. All right. So, in the years that followed, the locals continued to view Carl, the truck stop owner, as the main suspect. Carl, I showed your you his picture earlier he didn't look anything like the sketch Mm -mm. but still his behavior was enough for everyone to think he still may have done it yeah so alongside his violent behavior locals knew that he had actually sealed up the well on his property only a few days after the murder okay right so in the late 60s his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and while she was in the hospital she confessed to a friend that she believed Carl to be the murderer. Oh my God. And that she had given a false alibi to the police out of fear over what Carl would do to oh her. Oh my God. Isn't that fucked up? <sighs> anyway, the police who had a huge case file on Carl by this point visited the hospital to question his wife again, but she refused to make a statement. Come on. I know. So, because she wouldn't make a statement, and they had no evidence linking him to the murder, and they didn't search the fucking well when they had the chance, even though I guess they could still technically do it and just require a lot of work, they left him alone and did not investigate him anymore. Yeah. So, before the investigation was closed, I don't know what date or when this was, Apparently, Carl was with a neighbor sitting and drinking, and his neighbor said that he suddenly became angry and sad and just weird for, like, no discernible reason. And he was like, what the hell is the issue? And Carl said, don't you realize it yet? I am the murderer behind the Lake Bodum Massacre. Oh, my God. 
And the neighbor told him, if that's true, then go to the lake and drown yourself immediately, is what he said to him. What? Otherwise, you're going to be locked in a cell for the rest of your life. On August 2nd, 1969, the police found Carl's body floating in Lake Bodum. My. With the cause of death ruled as probable suicide. (gasps) I know. Since there were no independent witnesses to this alleged confession besides the you know, neighbor, and then, you know, they took into account that he was intoxicated and mentally unwell. They had a lack of evidence. They still did not consider this enough to close the investigation and deem Carl the killer. So was his wife still alive at this point, or did she pass away? I don't know. I don't Uh, know. I don't know. Either way, I don't know if she would have known if he was sleeping in a different... I mean, he was sleeping in the bedroom. I mean, the, the living room, and she was in the bedroom... He, I mean, I don't know. All she would have known, maybe, is that he left the house, but I, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So Hans, this guy, the guy that went into the hospital and terrorized all the hospital staff, he was interviewed in 1997 by a reporter. So the case is still cold at this point. When he was asked if he was the murderer, rather than denying any involvement, he said, quote, I can't disclose the details. So, of course, people took that and ran, thinking, oh, well, that's a confession. One of the doctors that treated Hans while he was in the hospital also wrote three books about the case and how Hans was likely the killer. Oh, my God. What? Isn't that not Three books? Three books. (laughs) Yeah. And they even asserted that Hans was linked to other unsolved cases, such as the murder of Kaliki Sari, who was a 17-year-old girl that was murdered in Isayoki, Finland in 1953. It is also a cold case. And then even the death of a Finnish parliament and minister named Pena Turvo. He actually died in a car accident, but there are a lot of people that think there was foul play. Whoa. Yeah. Hans passed away on June 19th, 1998 at a hospital in Sweden. I don't know from what. In 2005, the police finally declassified what info they had on Hans. In 1960, after the hospital called the police on him, thinking he, you know, had something to do with this, he was interrogated, but they quickly learned that he had a strong alibi. At the time of the murder, he was staying with his mistress at their apartment in Helsinki because he was having an affair. He was seen by the landlord, his mistress's sister, and her husband so it was pretty strong it was impossible for him to leave without being noticed by anyone and he apparently woke up and made coffee between 6 and 9 a.m the next morning and apparently the blood they eventually i guess they did test it or like looked at it at some point the blood that was on his clothes was actually red paint (laughs) oh okay and they said a strange behavior was due to him being intoxicated and of course, the he went into the hospital for stomach pain. But why? I don't know why he pretended to be unconscious. It's super weird. <laughs> you know, I saw an episode of To Catch a Predator, mm-hmm. and when the guy was caught, he did pretend to like be having a heart attack. Oh shit! <laughs> and it Dude. was ridiculous. Everyone was like, "We know you're fine," and he's just, "Oh like, my oh, god!" Oh, oh. <laughs> and it was just <laughs> intensely cringy. Oh my but god. I guess. Ugh. Have you seen that episode of To Catch a Predator where 
the guy had ordered pizza and he's like, let me just eat some pizza. Yes. And he's eating pizza yeah. while they're like interrogating him. Yeah. And he was like, no, I'm not going to answer questions. I'm just going to eat my pizza right now. Oh. <laughs> so weird. Um, so the police had actually fingerprinted Hans and they compared them to the unknown fingerprint found on whatever bottle it was um, at the crime scene. And they were not a match. Many people in the public also had thought that Hans was, you know, the perpetrator and they were unsatisfied, continued believing that Hans was the killer based on his resemblance only to the sketch. Mm-hmm. Many also noticed in pictures at the memorial service for the campers taken on June 13th, 1960, that there was a man amongst the mourners who looked like the man in the sketch, which I'm going to show you that picture. So you're looking at Hans right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think they look alike. Okay. But I guess many people thought that this was Hans and he attended the funeral to relive the experience of the murder. Mm. I see the resemblance to the sketch. It looks exactly like the sketch. For sure. It also doesn't look like a real human. Ew. Isn't that a weird looking? Yeah. Is, how is that real? <laughs> Oh, I hate it. It's so creepy. It's so creepy. By the way, guys, if you're new, we will be posting all these pictures on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Yeah. So the police ended up stopping putting much faith in the sketch. They also were like, well, hypnosis can also induce false memories. Olavi, which was the 15-year-old kid, was also put under hypnosis and described a similar man. But... When he was put under hypnosis, it was six years after the first sketch was released. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, okay. Hmm. There was another reason the sketch was disregarded, though, and that was that Nils may have been lying. What? So, in 2003, with many advancements in DNA testing and forensic technology made in the last 43 years since the murders, the case was reopened. All the evidence that had blood on them was tested. And on March 29th, 2004, the police arrested Nils Gustafsson, who was now a 62-year-old semi-retired truck driver and pensioner. What? Yeah. So the DNA tests showed that all of the victim's blood was found on Nils' shoes, except for his own. Oh my god. Yeah. So... What I'm about to tell you is the police's theory and the prosecution's theory. Okay. Because Nils did go to trial. So they believed that on the night of the murder, Nils, heavily intoxicated, got out a condom and attempted to have sex with Ermeli. She rejected him, which made him angry. And just remember, this is their theory. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of presenting it like fact, but it, this is their theory. So Seppo stepped between Nils and the two girls and was told to leave the tent. Fueled by alcohol, rage, and adrenaline, Nils waited until all three were asleep before cutting the tent ropes to trap everyone inside. Nils picked up a rock off the ground and started hitting Seppo on the head with it. Seppo resisted and kept kicking, eventually hitting Nils in the jaw through the tent. Nils took out his knife and began stabbing Seppo several times through the tent fabric in the chest and neck. Afterwards, Tuliki attempted to get out of the tent, 
Nils saw her and began bashing her on the head with a rock over and over again until she stopped moving. He finished the attack with her melee, repeatedly bludgeoning her head with a rock before stabbing her 15 times. Oh my god. After killing the three, he collected all the missing items that I had mentioned earlier and left the campsite to hide them. After he was done, he returned to the campsite to cut open and collapse the tent in order to make the crime scene appear more chaotic, quote unquote, and pulled down Romelli's pants to make the crime look like an attempted rape and laid down on top of the collapsed tent to wait for someone to discover the crime scene. What are your thoughts about that? Their portrayal of what he did. Their assertion. I don't think someone just gets drunk and starts stabbing someone 15 times. No, they're blaming it on like a, like, I don't want to have sex with you type thing. But think about how he was found on top of the tent. His fucking face was slashed open. Like, literally. You could see his teeth through his cheeks. Oh my God. Hell no. So do you think he could have killed these people and then after, I'm assuming that his face was fucked up that much from them fighting back, walked to go hide evidence and then come back to hide? Unless he did it after he did that, but I don't know. I don't, I think at that point you might just like run away. Right. I don't know. I don't, I don't buy it. I don't either. So the day after he was arrested, the press got wind of it and published his name in the newspaper, you know, saying, obviously, he was arrested for this crime. Then a 61-year-old woman came forward with a statement. She told, so this is in 2005, she told police that back in 1960, she was 17 years old and camping with her friends. She said she saw Nils arguing with some other people, and she said that she saw them after the murder would have taken place. She said she later saw two men who were not police officers carrying Nils away. When pressed for more details, she was unable to name or describe these other men and possible accomplices. Nils, of course, denied any involvement and accused her of lying, as he said he had never seen her, and said that Tuliki's journal entries proved his innocence because they made no reference to an argument and that there were no signs of like erasing anything or anything being changed or pages being torn or anything. So the police handed the case over to the prosecutor. They charged Nils with three counts of murder on April 2nd. 2nd, Yeah. (laughs) On April 2nd, 2004, the Espo district court felt that there was enough to bring the case to trial. The trial began on August 4th, 2005, and Nils, of course, pled not guilty. The prosecutor said, or I don't know how anything works in Finland, but either way, they were seeking a life sentence. The prosecution repeated the same theory as the police, like I just told you, and they actually claimed that Nils only suffered a minor concussion and accused him of lying about his amnesia to avoid implicating himself. Bitch, he was unconscious in the hospital for a while, so there's no way he had just a minor concussion. (laughs) So for the trial, the tent was restored and displayed for the court. And this actually ended up playing a crucial role in how the trial ended up. Mm -hmm. So Nils' two attorneys began their arguments. 
They disputed the idea that it was Nils who threw his and Seppo's shoes in the bushes, saying that meant he would have had to have walked back to the campsite all by himself, either barefoot or just in socks. This was an issue because both the soles of his feet and his socks were clean and showed no signs of walking that long distance. The prosecutor claimed that the tent was cut and stabbed through after the murders to contaminate the crime scene. Thanks to the restored tent, Nils' attorneys were able to poke holes in this theory. Because the bloodstains on the tent were all located alongside the location of the stab wounds, strongly indicating that the victims were stabbed through the tent. That seems like a fucking dumb argument if you haven't done your research. Like, Mm -hmm. why would you even claim that if you know that all the stab wounds or the stab punctures punctures (laughs) had blood near them? Like, I don't know. Seems weird to me. Nils had sustained many non-self-inflicted stab wounds, which also obviously contradicted the police and prosecution's theory that all that had happened was Seppo kicking his jaw through the tent. Only bloodstains from the four victims were found at the scene, and the prosecution didn't believe that others were involved in the crime. The defense refuted this claim because only 20 blood samples taken from 11 locations had been tested, which meant the police and prosecutors had no way for sure to rule out the existence of a fifth individual. So I guess that there were more spots that they didn't even bother to look at. Yeah. The DNA by that point had also been degrading for 45 years. Yeah. And even if the results were accurate, if the murderer was adequately prepared and attacked from outside the tent, they may not have shed a single drop of blood. The defense also turned the DNA results against them and pointed out how Nils' blood was found in the location where he claimed to be sleeping. They argued that if he was the killer, his blood should not have been inside the tent. The defense also relied on eyewitnesses who saw others walking away from the tent at the same time Nils was lying unconscious on top of it. Mm -hmm. The prosecution called upon neurological experts to testify, and they stated that Nils had only suffered a minor concussion, like we said. And of course, the defense and their experts thought this was laughable. He had been unconscious for nearly five days, suffered permanent brain damage, memory loss, and was unable to maintain his balance for weeks after waking up, requiring the use of a cane. The prosecutor and the police never explained where his severe injuries came from. As a last-ditch effort, a police officer guarding Nils' cell during his pretrial detention was made to testify about an alleged confession made by Nils. The officer said that Nils said, quote, what does it matter? What's done is done. The worst case scenario is that I will be sentenced to 15 years, which I guess that non-admission or non, I don't know, they were like, oh, he confessed because he didn't deny it or something. Kind of just sounds like he's just given up. Absolutely. And the prosecution is grasping at straws at this point, I feel like. There were no written statements or recordings, obviously, of him saying this. Nils himself denied ever uttering the words. And the context of him making the statement was also never stated. So the court had any testimony on this thrown out. And they determined that it wasn't a valid confession, assuming it even happened. On October 7th, 2005, the six-judge panel, by the way, six judges. What? Yeah, isn't that crazy? 
Like I said, I don't know how anything works in Finland, but <laughs> I guess it's not a jury. It's six judges. Oh. The six judges reached their verdict. Based on his blood being found inside the tent, the impossibility of disposing and hiding evidence with his injuries, a lack of evidence and exonerating witness testimony, they found Nils not guilty. And the, his acquittal was unanimous. So since the prosecutor didn't appeal the verdict within the allotted seven days, Nils was released and given 44,900 euros in compensation, which I did some conversions here. So in 2005, 44,900 euros would have been 46,820 U.S. dollars in 2005. Today... It would have been 69,817 euros or 73,788 US dollars. Not enough. Not even close <laughs> to enough. After he suffered all that trauma yes. as well and had to relive all of this. Like, yes, reliving 40 it. 40 years later, yes. however long. Horrible. Horrible. I totally think that truck stop guy did it. That's my leading theory. So due to the media heavily reporting on the case and labeling Nils as a murderer, he has pretty much stayed inside his house and rarely ever leaves to avoid anyone. Because this was a big ass case in yeah. Finland. He actually sued some of the media and newspapers for defamation, but he withdrew because no lawyers would take his case for some reason. Oh my God. Yeah. No new suspects have ever been identified after his acquittal, and 63 years later, the case remains unsolved. So that's it, man. I Yeah, I think the general consensus is that Carl did it. Yeah. I wish they would fucking look in that well. They still haven't? They still wow. have Wow. Come on. Yeah, it's crazy. I guess they didn't have enough evidence for a warrant or something i don't know well is the well still there let's i don't know i mean i don't know i wonder if i could look on google maps unless it's covered by trees Jeez. yeah i wonder i should have done that i should have looked on google maps to see where it is let's go to finland and do it up <laughs> i'm assuming you poured like concrete or some shit down there but i don't know <laughs> yeah Wow. Yeah. It's awful. So the original place I got the story from was a Reddit user called Moondog151. I went to all of his source, his or her sources and um, translated them to English. They're all Finnish sources. So I kind of felt like, you know, there'll be a little bit. I did look at like the Wikipedia page in English and stuff mm -hmm. like that, but it had not as much detail. So Sources are, I'm going to fuck all this up. So Helsingin Sanomat, ermakvegis.com, yle.fi, Ilta Sanomat, Lanzivalia, and Kaleva. <laughs> Those are all news things. <laughs> so yeah, wow. that's it. I always wondered what that picture was from. Yes, I know. I I've like seen it. I just I've always know. seen it when people are talking about the Uncanny Valley or something. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, like as an example yeah, of for sure. that. But 
It's creepy as fuck, guys. Guys, check out the Instagram, Instagram or Facebook so you can see this picture. It's yeah. so scary. And you can also see my interpretation, <laughs> yeah. which is much more goofy and way less creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That was good. Yay. Uh, do you have anything to... Nothing present? else to add, but okay. I do have a very short story that I wanted to tell. Okay. Nice. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, before I start, I just remembered. Did you hear about Matthew Perry? Oh, my God, yes. We were eating dinner last night. And it's so tragic. Sam, my sister-in-law, is such a huge Friends fan. Yeah. And she got a text from her dad that said Matthew Perry died. Yeah. And I was just like, what? Yeah. I, he was my favorite friend. I watched all of Friends, but it was not until I was an adult. Like, I'd never... I watched, like, like on... I don't know if it was on TGIF or whatever. But I was never allowed to watch those those kinds of uh, secular shows when I was growing up. So... Aww. But anyway. Um, yeah. It's super fucking sad, dude. When I saw that... I saw it on Reddit, I think, or Instagram or something last night. I was like, this is a joke. This is a joke. He's not dead. I know. And it's fucking true. And it's really fucking sad how he died. And also, did you see the picture of the, um, that he posted, the last Instagram picture he posted? No. While you're looking for that, I just wanted to say, did you know that Keith Morrison is his stepdad? I found that out today. Yes. I I saw that on, um, Pretty Lies and Alibis. Yes, me too. He, so Keith Morrison has known him since he was 10 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> Poor Keith. Poor Keith. Love you, Keith. So, his last post is of him in the, the apparently giant-ass hot tub. And it says, Oh, so warm water swirling around makes you feel good? I'm Matman. I don't know what that means. Mm. But... Yeah, and he passed away in his jacuzzi. I... Yeah. Apparently, I didn't know this, but if you stay in the hot tub for too long, it's very bad for you. Oh, yeah. I did not know that at all. <laughs> well, especially if you're drinking. Yeah. Which he does have substance abuse issues. Yeah. It's like you get even more dehydrated and... Fuck, dude. I hate that so much. He was way too young. Way too young. Oh, I hate That's it. so sad, dude. It's so sad. It's not fair. That's like, um... Fucking Bob Saget. Yeah. Just, I mean, he had substance abuse issues, issues too, but I think his cause of death was determined to be like he fell in his head or something, yeah. right? So, I don't know. I hate that so much. Just, ugh, fuck, dude, fuck. And, of course, obviously I know you can die any fucking way in the world because my job is that exactly, but just everyone needs to get a bubble and... Like one of those plastic bubbles and walk around in it. <laughs> Just live forever, everyone. Well, with that note, we're going to be talking about Return to Nature Funeral Home. Yeah, what, what the hell is that name? Return to Nature? Return to Nature is a funeral home with two locations serving the Colorado Springs area. Okay. They pride themselves in providing green and natural burial services, which allow bodies to decompose underground without the use of metal caskets or chemicals. 
So, by the way, this is how I want to go or be buried. Okay. I, I want a natural burial. Okay. And I've told people this because embalming fluid mm-hmm. ruins the earth. Yeah. And cremation, when your family gets those remains, it is a mix of you and somebody else. Ew. Yeah. So that is the way I want. Okay. Want to have it to happen. Noted. <laughs> Thanks. I can't do anything about it, but noted. <laughs> Their website, which has since been taken down, states, Green burial is a natural way of caring for your loved one with with minimal environmental impact. Green burial aids in the conservation of natural resources, reduction of carbon emissions, and the preservation of habitat without the use of harsh embalming chemicals, metallic, plastic, or unnatural items. Mm -hmm. Embalming is not a law in the state of Colorado. Within 24 hours, the body must be either embalmed or placed in a regulated temperature controlled environment, meaning under refrigeration, dry ice, etc. So, Return to Nature Funeral Home seems to be highly regarded in the community with mostly five-star reviews on Google. But law enforcement had been receiving reports of strong odors coming from the Penrose location, located roughly 30 miles south of Colorado Springs. Uh Uh-oh. So on October 3rd, the police paid Return to Nature Funeral Home a visit to investigate. According to Fremont County Sheriff Alan Cooper, what they found was horrific. Inside the 2,500-square-foot building, they discovered 189 dead and decaying bodies. (gasps) 189? Yeah. Where the fuck were they keeping them in that small-ass building? It looks like a pizza hut. It does look like a pizza hut. (laughs) It probably was a pizza hut that's been converted to a funeral home because, you know, all those pizza huts get converted into Surely the pizza hut didn't have a basement. Like, what the fuck? The state of the facility was so severe that one of the county coroner employees developed a rash upon entering the funeral home. Oh, my God. The situation required more than just local authorities. So the governor of Colorado issued a verbal disaster declaration that brought in both state and federal bureaus of investigation, as well as three county coroners, the State of Emergency Management Agency, and state and local police. Oh, my God. The bodies that were recovered were transported to the El Paso County Coroner's Office, where they are using fingerprints, dental records, and DNA samples to conduct what they expect to be a very lengthy identification process that could last several months. Oh, my God. I cannot imagine how long that is going to take. The coroner anticipates the total number of bodies will rise as the identification process continues. El Paso County Coroner Dr. Leon Kelly told News 5 his office worked alongside the FBI identification team, Fremont County, and the Air National Guard to conduct all 189 autopsies within a week and made several discoveries. Holy shit. I can't believe they churned them out that fast. I know. I guess they had a lot of people on board. like Maybe they had multiple working. medical examiners they and did. stuff. Yeah. They did. They had three separate oh, that's right. coroners. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Quote, I can tell you that these bodies, some of which have been here for several years, which speaks to the condition and the level of difficulty in identifying many to most of them. The coroner said that the majority of the bodies were from El Paso County and many of the bodies had received an autopsy in his office prior to the discovery at Return to Nature. Oh my God. So 
when when their families had the funerals, what the fuck did they bury? If they're natural burials, wouldn't they have been there for burials? And well, I'm gonna explain that okay. a little bit more. Okay. Okay. Oh my okay. God, dude. It took a week of 12-hour days on three-hour rotations to identify most of the bodies, and families are in the process of being notified by the Fremont County Coroner. Families who have used Return to Nature in the past are being asked to contact the FBI so investigators can try to match the rest of the remains with their families. Christina Page was one of those family members to receive a call from the Colorado Springs Police and the FBI informing her that her son was among the bodies found inside the Return to Nature funeral home. Her son, David, died in 2019, and he was 20 years old. Quote, I'm absolutely appalled. This feels like he was killed again. Yeah. Paige told 11 News she received what she was told were her son's ashes years ago, and then fingerprints from Return to Nature a year later. Quote, I'm wondering if those fingerprints are even his or if they grabbed some random body to fingerprint a year later. Right. Or maybe they did fingerprint him a year later. I didn't think that would have been possible because he was supposed to be ash by then, Paige said. Oh, so they cremated them or supposedly yeah. cremated them? Yep. Paige, like many others, had to break the news to the rest of her family reliving a personal tragedy all over again. Like Lindsay Mahar, who posted on Facebook with her own story and desperate plea to hold Return to Nature accountable. She writes, If you've seen the news this past week, you might have come across this story, but if you haven't, the gist of it is that a couple named Carrie and John Halford, owners of a funeral home called Return to Nature in Penrose, Colorado, willfully neglected 115 dead bodies and left them to decompose and rot in an abandoned location of theirs. One of those bodies is my grandmother. We hired the help of Return to Nature when my grandma died this past summer. My grandma's last wishes were to be cremated and have her ashes spread in the ocean. It turns out the ashes we received from Return to Nature was actually just concrete dust, and my grandma's body <gasps> has been at the abandoned building this entire time just decaying next to 114 other bodies of 114 other unsuspecting families. They falsified my grandma's death certificate and handed my grieving family concrete dust. I need your help holding the state of Colorado accountable and fighting for change so that this never happens to anyone ever again. Please share this story, talk about it, make a donation, whatever you can to help my grandma and these other families get justice. I don't have the emotional energy to answer questions, not trying to be rude. So if you need any more information, simply Google Return to Nature Funeral Home or John and Carrie Halford, and you'll find plenty of info. If you would like information for the GoFundMe set up to fund the planting of trees for the 115 who want a green burial and never got one, I'll post it in the comments. Thank you for reading. So initially, she's saying 115, but they ended up finding almost 200. It's insane. This is unbelievable. I know. Why? Why? Yeah. Why? If you have a fucking cremation thing, why the fuck are you doing this? I mean, I don't think most funeral homes have a cremation. I don't think so either. But if they claim to have that service, then what? I mean, what the fuck? Do they just claim to have it and just not have it? And... Then they just throw the body in whatever fucking room. It kind of sounds like it. I mean, I 
so their website's taken down, but I went on yeah. the Wayback Machine and looked at their website. Okay. And the latest picture of their website did state that they no longer offered cremation services, but they posted that July 2023, so not that long ago. Oh, wow. But that being said, her grandmother was cremated by them before that. Supposedly. No arrests or charges have been made in connection with the case, and officials say that it's still unclear whether a crime has been committed. And to that, I say, what the fuck? Um, excuse me? (laughs) Colorado has some of the most lax funeral home regulations in the country, with no routine inspections or qualification requirements for funeral home operators. This allowed Return to Nature to continue operating as a business, despite them having been evicted from their Colorado Springs location for unpaid taxes and being sued by a crematory who were not being paid for their services. In addition, during the investigation, it had been discovered that Return to Nature's Penrose location had continued to operate a year after their registration expired. So... Who the hell is running this place, you may ask? Yeah, well, I would like to know. We mentioned earlier, but 43-year-old John Michael Halford and his wife Carrie Halford were the owners. A day after the foul odor was reported coming from Return to Nature Funeral Home, the director of the State Office of Funeral Home and Crematory Registration spoke on the phone with John Halford. John acknowledged having a problem at the Penrose site and claimed he was practicing taxidermy there. Why would you say that? I guess that was his way of, like, making an excuse for the scent. I see. Oh my god, dude. I mean, I don't know. You're digging a hole, dude. So all of this is according to an October 5th order from state officials. The order also alleged Halford tried to conceal the improper storage of corpses. That document and a second October 5th notice for Halford to cease and desist operating the Penrose site are the only correspondence sent by state officials to return to nature from the time it lost its registration to the discovery of the bodies. I couldn't find much on Carrie Halford, but John has quite the legal history. Aside from the tax evasion and refusal to pay for hundreds of cremations, John was charged with one count of misdemeanor for pointing a deadly weapon after an incident that he described as a prank gone wrong. The story is this. Prior to living in Colorado, John Halford was an Oklahoma resident, and in 2006, Halford and two others staged a fake robbery as a prank. A prank? A fake robbery is a prank? Are you serious? <sighs> the prank stupid? was on a group of young women at a slumber party in Wagoner County, Oklahoma. The three men entered the home wearing masks and holding unloaded firearms. Oh my god. Hilarious! I would... I, oh my god. Yeah. Just based on the feeling I had at Target by some guy openly carrying a gun earlier today. If someone entered my home, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, that's so funny. Thank you so much for that joke. Yeah, it's hilarious. Halford told the Tulsa World, Halford told the Tulsa World at the time he used, quote, very bad judgment in taking part in the prank. 
but that he also felt the timing of the charges may have been politically motivated since this charge bit him in the ass while he was in the process of running for the Muscogee City Council. He lost by a landslide. (laughs) Wow. And that's not all. Court records obtained by the Gazette from the state of Oklahoma show that Halford had numerous civil disputes spanning several years and was ordered to pay thousands of dollars to various entities before moving to Colorado. But perhaps the biggest crime of all are the ungodly amount of selfies he posts to his Return to Nature (laughs) Instagram page. On the company's Instagram page? Yes. Oh my god, look at this. Oh my god, this guy. (laughs) So, John Halford thinks he is hot. Yeah, you can tell. He thinks he's hot shit. His raised eyebrow. (laughs) He has way too many superhero shirts and I just (sighs) This one right here kills me. His expression. He's like, oh yeah. He's in the funeral home. I'm looking good. <laughs> yeah, in he's the like funeral. fucking modeling in the funeral home. Yeah. <laughs> this one is is of him building a casket. Oh my god. Um, Which is like, yep, yeah, I'm just building a casket. Anyway, like, Bruh. I I raked their fucking Instagram page, and yeah. so I guess it's owned by his like. Well, it's him and his wife, but his kids also are a part of it. Uh-huh. And they like had a Halloween costume one year. They all dressed up as the Adams family, and I just that just felt like why are you posting that on your funeral home Facebook yeah. page? Isn't the like attitude of funeral homes supposed to just be like respectful and kind of in the background? Yeah, like respectful in the background. We are here to help you. We're right. not spooky ass. Fucking narcissist. Yeah. Which is what he's trying to, like... He's really trying to build, like, this whole character around himself. And I did find his Twitter page, and he's very vocal um, on there as well. He's very politically incorrect, and... Oh, God. I mean, doesn't matter which way he leans. He's just, like, a douche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Posting thirst traps in the funeral chapel. Are you kidding me? For real. (sighs) The fuck? The investigation is ongoing, but I look forward to hearing about how the Halfords will be held accountable for such a disgusting act of greed and disrespect. And before I finish, I just want to share this. The Halfords posted this image on their Instagram nine times. And guys, we'll post this on the Instagram page. What is that, Mallory? (gasps) What? Okay. I'm so confused. So it's a black and white image of two very old ladies sitting on a bench in a park, presumably. One lady is leaning over to the other one telling her something. And there's a quote that says, that funeral home only wants me for my body. They posted this nine times on their Instagram page. This is like their like thing they post. What do you think about that? So... I don't think any normal funeral home that wasn't doing what he was doing would post this image. No. He does sound very politically incorrect. He thinks he's hilarious. Yeah, but it's very fucking ironic now that we know what we know. Exactly. I don't know. Why Why would you post that? What? Nine times. 
nine times. Why would you post that once? They post a lot of things like this, like tongue-in-cheek death things. Like there's one of a person being eaten by an alligator that's like, I should have planned my funeral ahead or something like. Oh, uh, my God. Anyway, so it's ongoing. He hasn't been arrested. No charges have been filed yet. But this has all just happened. Wow. It kind of sounds like they weren't paying for their cremations. Yeah. And they just decided to keep charging people for them. They got cut off and then now they're like, oh. They're just like, I guess I'm going to just like hammer this concrete cinder block. And And we'll throw the body in the closet or wherever. We'll throw the body in that storage container there. Yeah. And we'll just give them this dust. The funeral director, like, they are supposed to be the comfort to you. Yeah. And provide you with the feeling that your loved one is cared for. And, like, yep. oh, my God, I just cannot imagine yeah. what these families are dealing with. 189, at least, bodies of people. How? Uh, man, I just, God damn it, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. It reminds me of that, I think I've talked about this before, that um, guy in New York who owned a funeral home or worked at a funeral home or something and was, like, sending tissue and body parts to yeah, uh, what I do, basically, tissue processors to, without consent from the families. And the families found out and they're like, uh, I was thinking, we never said you could do that. Like, is this guy just taking all the people who won't? like whose families wanted them to be cremated and just storing all these bodies. And is, is that what he's doing or is he doing something with these bodies? Right. Or, because he was like, I do taxidermy there. Like, what is he like? Is he like that guy that I did another mini on yeah. who has this weird museum of mostly babies? <laughs> I, I think it's like a greed thing because this guy has been yeah. sued so many times for like financial crimes or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, I, I can't explain it. Why would you do this? Like, wouldn't you rather take a little break from your funeral home gig? And yeah. And so there were multiple locations, right? Or two? Well, they had the Colorado Springs location and then they had the Penrose location. So the other one didn't have that problem? I'm not sure how exactly it worked like if so Penrose is about 30 miles from Colorado Springs yeah I'm not sure if this place was like a like where they did the autopsies and the other place was like where they meet with people I don't know okay I don't know but yeah not sure of the the purpose of the facility Penrose location I looked on Google Maps it looks like it's in a pretty kind of remote area there's really nothing much around it okay so I'm not sure, but how I could do, you do that? I don't know, and I don't see this ending with him not being in jail. So good. Oh, Enjoy, I hope he's in jail dude. at least. And I don't know how his wife was involved, right? Or yeah, what's her role there? Does she actually participate, or is she just an owner or something like that? Like, did yeah. she have any clue that this was going on? Or yeah, but Man. isn't that nuts? It's fucked up, dude. Uh, this funeral home only wants me for my body. They they didn't give any details on like how they were stored. Uh, they weren't stored 
properly. legally or properly right. at all. <laughs> yeah. And the, the fact that the coroner had already done autopsies on these people and he's like seeing them again. I know that's fucking crazy. That's fucking crazy. So yeah, I mean, I am assuming that all of these bodies are in various states of decomposition for years. And it may be it's got to only be down to dental records to identify some of these people. I said dental records, tattoos, medical implants. I feel like some of these you can't even you probably don't even have skin. So I mean, I don't know how long they've been storing them, but... They the, said years. Yeah, there's no way. They have a form. Um, the FBI has put a form up on their website. You can find it if you Google the Return to Nature funeral home. And you can, if, if you're a victim, if you think you might be a victim, if you've ever used them, you can fill out this form and like give all the details of yourself, your family member, and they will contact you and... like. They're searching for anyone that might have had a family member here. So apparently Colorado is just like wild west. Why are they like that? (laughs) I don't know. What? I feel like I would expect that of like Florida, but not Colorado. (laughs) I don't know. I do not But it's awful. That's, That's terrifying. So I found my information from NPR, CoAA News 5 Southern Colorado, KKTV Colorado Springs, The Gazette, and Alternative Press. Well, that was good. That was a good one. I guess that's all we got for you tonight. That's all we got. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You may rate us on Spotify. Or rate us on Spotify. You can join our Facebook group. We have a chat, and you guys can post about whatever you want. We we do our um, episode posts where you can comment as well. It's just rabbit hole happy hour. Um, you just have to re- request to join, but we'll approve you. We'll approve you. Um, <laughs> and then we're on Instagram at rabbit hole happy hour. If you feel like supporting the podcast monetarily, we do have an option to donate at buymeacoffee.com slash R-H-H-H. Okay, bye. Okay. I'll I'll see (laughs) you. Bye. 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 Bye.